Good morning, everybody. It's been a wild morning, <laughs> but I know that the Lord has a special word for us today. And so please, if you're taking notes, take notes. It's gonna be impossible for you to remember scriptures without taking notes, if you want to take notes. But I would encourage that you do that this morning. Can you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share your word. I make it known that I don't depend on my human ability, but Holy Spirit, I trust you to speak in and through me today in Jesus' name. I pray for open hearts, Father, to receive your word this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Awesome. Let's start. Um, scripture, our first scripture. Did you get my scriptures? No. Okay, let's go. First scripture, Hebrews 6 verse 1. Therefore, let us go on and get past the elementary stage in the teachings and doctrine of Christ, advancing steadily toward the completeness and perfection that belong to spiritual maturity. So this morning, I want to speak to us about growing up. I realize that this year we, we're speaking about Grow 20, Grow 24 is our theme and about growing. Um, but you know that if we don't grow first um, in our maturity and if we don't grow in our relationship with the Lord, it's going to be very difficult to bear fruit in anything else in our lives. So if you want a good marriage, a good business, to be a good parent, all these things, that is fruit and just an extension of really our relationship with him. And we need to grow up, amen? So before we begin, you're a child of God, period. Just take a pause, reflect on that for a sentence. You are God's child. This is not a negotiation of are we, aren't we, we are. But this is a discussion about how we need to grow, amen? So like any good father, God loves you where you are today but he also wants you to grow up. That's why the moment you're born again, a spiritual growth process begins. Throughout the New Testament, a striking similarity between spiritual development and physical development is revealed. Just as there are three specific stages of physical growth, childhood, adolescence, and then adulthood, there are three specific stages of spiritual growth. And in 1 John 2, verse 11 to 14, we read, I am writing to you, little children, believers, dear ones, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. You have been pardoned and released from spiritual death through his name because you have confessed his name, believing in him as Savior. I'm writing to you, fathers, those believers who are spiritually mature because you know him, who has existed from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, those believers who are growing in spiritual maturity because you have been victorious and overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, those who are new believers, those spiritually immature, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has existed from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and vigorous and the word of God remains always in you and you have been victorious over the evil one by accepting Jesus as savior. 
The three stages of spiritual growth are evident. First, childhood, listed as little children. This stage includes those who are new believers and spiritually immature. Second, adolescence, described as young men. This stage involves those who are growing in spiritual maturity. And third, adulthood, listed as fathers. This stage includes those who are spiritually mature. Please understand, spiritual maturity is not a destination, but it's a gradual, progressive process of grace. The same grace that saved you also empowers you to grow in Christ. In fact, the only way we can grow in Christ is through God's empowering grace that comes through faith. So please don't make your spiritual growth the result of your own striving. We're gonna get nowhere striving in our own strength. At the end of the day, the only way we grow in Christ is by letting go of our own weaknesses and inabilities so that we can overcome by God's glorious grace. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 1 verse 6, and this is the Passion Translation, I'm fully convinced that the one who began this glorious work in you will faithfully continue the process of maturing you, and he will put his finishing touches to it until the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, until Jesus returns, you are a work in progress. So don't allow the enemy to undermine your growth by convincing you that you'll never be good enough. Let's consider the differences between the spiritually immature and the spiritually mature. In regard to the spiritually immature, Paul wrote, brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I found it impossible to speak to you as those who are spiritually mature people, for you are still dominated by the mindset of the flesh. And because you are immature infants in Christ, I I had to nurse you and feed you with milk, not with solid food for more advanced teachings because you weren't ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready to be fed solid food for you are living your lives dominated by the mindset of the flesh. Ask yourselves, is there jealousy among you? Do you compare yourselves with others? Do you quarrel like children and end up taking sides? If so, This proves that you're living your lives centered on yourselves, dominated by the mindset of the flesh and behaving like unbelievers. Eek. So that we are no longer children. This is Ephesians 4, 14. Spiritually immature, tossed back and forth like ships on a stormy sea and carried about by every wind of shifting doctrine, by the cunning and trickery of unscrupulous men, by the deceitful scheming of people ready to do anything for personal profit. In regard to the spiritually mature, Paul wrote in Romans 8:14, the mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of the Holy Spirit. So you see the difference, flesh and Holy Spirit. And the writer of Hebrews shared, solid food is for the spiritually mature whose senses are trained by practice to distinguish between what is morally good and what is evil. So here we see the characteristics exhibited by a spiritually immature person include selfishness, a life dominated by fleshly impulses, and an inability to comprehend advanced teaching. They can easily be misled by incorrect teaching. So they run after whatever's hot in the moment. Conversely, The characteristics displayed by a mature believer include selflessness, 
ability to discern, comprehend, and appropriate truth and a life influenced by the Holy Spirit. So to summarize, the difference between an immature believer and a mature believer is whether we are influenced by our flesh or by the Spirit. For this reason, Paul said, I told you guys I've got to write down today, there's a lot of scripture. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. By letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. This is the word, Romans 8, 5 to 9. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of God, Christ living in them, do not belong to Him at all. So as a believer, we have God's Spirit living in us. When you yield to the work of the Holy Spirit within you, you'll be empowered to live like Jesus and become more like Him. That's the mark of a mature believer. God is pleased when we progress from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. The goal after all of spiritual maturity is to become more like Jesus, amen. And Paul writes in Romans 8, 29, for him he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. To grasp this idea, we must understand the word predestined by looking at its root and its prefix. So the prefix, the pre or the before, means before or prior to the beginning. The root destination means where you will end up or the finish line. So when we put the two together, predestined, we can see the definition emerge to set the finish line before the start. So for him, he foreknew, he set the finish line before the start to be conformed to the image of his son. Amen? That's Romans 8, 29. So God sets a destination for mankind prior to creating us, and that would fulfill his purpose. God's intent from the beginning was for us, his creation, to become like his son, Jesus. Paul taught that we are growing in every way to become more and more like Christ. God wants more children who resemble his nature and his likeness. This means that Jesus is the oldest <clears throat> amongst a vast family of brothers and sisters who will become just like him. When discussing becoming more like Jesus, please understand that God doesn't want you to become a God apart from him. He wants you to become godly through your union with him. Almost every time the word son is used in the New Testament, it comes from two Greek words, technon and husias. I had to Google on Google how to pronounce that, Husiath. The good definition, a good definition for the word technon is the one who is a son by the mere facts of birth. So when my son Joshua was born, he was my son by the mere fact that he came from CJ and I. When he was in the, in the nursery, in the hospital, in the midst of all the other newborns, you could not recognize him as my son 
Pai's personality. When friends and family came to visit, and even CJ's boss, like, what the heck? <laughs> they could not pick him out except by the name tag on his crib. You know those plastic cribs? He did not possess anything that set him apart. But Joshua would be considered a technon, a son by birth of CJ and Natalie Janssen. So we find technon used in Romans 8, 15, 16. It says that because we have received the spirit of adoption, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children, technon of God. When a person receives Jesus Christ as Lord, he's a child of God by the fact of a new birth experience. That's in John 1.12. The second Greek word translated son in the New Testament is husias. Many times it is, described, it is used to describe the one who can be identified as a son because he displays the character or characteristics of his parents. As Joshua grew, he started looking, maybe not in heart, but he started looking and acting like us. So let me give you a quick when he was two years old, at that stage, CJ used to wear these very baggy pants. You know, it was a thing that rappers did. And he used to sag his pants, which is the thing that rappers did. And Joshua had baggy pants like his dad. And he was walking one day and he pulled the, pant, his, the top of his pants down. So his nappy was sticking out. And I was like, Joshy, what you doing? I look like daddy. <laughs> <laughs> So he started looking and acting like us. And as Joshua is growing up, my mom-in-law always tells us that Joshua is almost a carbon copy of his dad, except in heart, of course. But his quiet, gentle nature, his musical and technical abilities, and his personality is much like his dad when he was his age. As he has grown, and as he is growing, he's becoming more and more like his dad. And he even carries an anointing that his dad carries. He could now be recognized as CJ's Janssen's son, not only by the mere fact of his birth and his name, but by the characteristics and personality that resemble his dad. So was Joshua any less our child when he was a baby? No. But as he matured, he became more like us, more like his dad. So God loves us in every stage. But his desire is that we would become husias, sons and daughters who reflect his nature. And not just sons and daughters by name. If we read 1 Corinthians 13, 11, When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Spiritual growth is not automatic. It requires intentionality to grow and develop. Now that we've discussed God's plan for his children to become spiritually mature, let's look at some practical ways to nurture this growth process. Number one, spiritual nourishment. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Spiritual growth requires spiritual nutrition. When a person is born again, our new nature requires spiritual nourishment to grow. God's word provides us necessary nourishment for our souls. And in a world containing a ton of diets, which promise a variety of health advantages, no diet is more important than the one consisting of God's word. 
without a healthy diet of God's word will become spiritually malnourished, inhibiting our growth. God's word is so rich in spiritual nutrients that it contains nourishment suitable for every stage of our spiritual development. A newborn believer should crave God's word like a nursing infant cries for milk. In the same way that nursing infants cry for milk, you must intensely crave the pure spiritual milk of God's word. This is 1 Peter 2 verse 2. For this milk will cause you to grow into maturity, fully nourished and strong for life. As believers develop in their spiritual growth, they can sink their teeth into the meat of God's word. And in Hebrews, um, believers are confronted who remain spiritual infants after their years of conversion. In Hebrews 5 verse 12, you have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. Regardless of what stage of spiritual development we are at, God's word must be continually consumed. Jesus taught that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's Matthew 4.4. Jesus indicates it that his word is to our spirit what physical food is to our body. And this is why Jeremiah confessed in Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Job confessed, I have not departed from his commandments, but have treasured his words more than daily food. Imagine we treasured reading the word more than we did our tea and coffee. Maybe we should try that this week. The word of God must be a priority in our lives. Just as we need physical food to sustain and nourish us physically, we need spiritual food to sustain and nourish us spiritually. God's word is living and powerful. Similarly, Jesus said his words were spirit and they are life. The picture conveyed to us is one of intense, vibrant energy. His words impart life and energy into our spirits. In today's world, we have abundance of material possessions, entertainment, and activities that can easily consume our souls. And I think we can all testify that one of those things is our phones. The only way we can create and maintain a hunger for God and His Word is to watch what we feed on. Uh, Proverbs 27, 7 states, a satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. Simply put, if your soul is filled with other things, entertainment, pleasures, extracurricular activities, you'll be full and actually despise the sweet honeycomb of God's word. Imagine Christmas day. Most of us eagerly gather with family and friends. We might even skip breakfast to preserve space for this large meal. And when the feast begins, out comes the lamb and the beef, the chicken. We don't really have turkey in South Africa. Tongue, which is such a South African thing that I don't like. Del- <laughs> Delicious roast potatoes. We inevitably consume more than we should. And afterwards we groan because we've eaten too much. But perhaps a couple of hours later, we go to another family member's home. And this is very typical in colored families. So in our family, the food comes out again, but maybe this time the food's even more gourmet. However, instead of us 
having another plate of food, right? We just cannot eat. Why? Because we're still full from the previous meal. It doesn't matter that this meal is superior in taste. We just don't have capacity for it. So ultimately, we feed on what we hunger for. So don't stuff yourself with things that will fill you up, but never satisfy you. As you choose to feed on God's word, you'll begin to hunger for it. And you'll find a sustenance that satisfies your soul. Our second point, so we've spoken about spiritual nourishment, is the prescribed soil. James 1.21. So get rid of all uncleanness and all that remains of wickedness. And with a humble spirit, receive the word of God, which is implanted, actually rooted in your heart, which is able to save your souls. Transformation begins with God's word planted in our hearts. Our response to God's word determines the effects it will have on our spiritual growth and development. That is why Apostle James instructed us to prepare our hearts to receive God's word. Jesus discussed this pivotal truth in the parable of the sower in Luke 8, 4, uh, 8, 4 to 15. So I'm gonna paraphrase, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but the parable tells the story of a farmer who went into his field to plant his seed. As he scattered it, some fell on the road where it was stomped down and birds ate it. Other seed fell on the gravel and sprouted, but then the plants withered because they were not planted securely. Other seed fell in the weeds where it sprouted and grew, but the weeds grew with it and eventually strangled it. Finally, the remainder of the seed fell in rich soil, producing an abundant crop and harvest. So later when Jesus was alone with his disciples, he explained the deeper meaning of the parable. He began with the meaning of the seed. The word of God is the seed that is sown into our hearts. Luke 8, 11. A seed contains everything it needs to fulfill its destiny. All that is required for life and growth is soil, which represents the condition of our hearts. Continuing with his explanation of this parable, Jesus explained, the hard pathway represents the hard hearts of men who hear the word of God, but the slanderer quickly comes and snatches away what was sown in their hearts to keep them from believing and experiencing salvation. That's Luke 8, 12. The word is heard, but the enemy comes and he tries to take it out of our hearts for one purpose. And that is for us to prevent us from experiencing the word's transformative power. He does this by attempting to plant wrong thinking and reasoning that exalts themselves above God's word. His objective is to make God's word appear foolish. And this is why Paul charges us to be proactive. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself above the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. If the devil's strategy to deceive doesn't work, he tries another method. And this is orchestrating challenging circumstances. So Jesus, Jesus shared in Luke 8, 13, the seed falling on the gravel represents those who initially respond to the word with joy, but soon afterwards, when a season of harassment of the enemy and difficulty come to them, they wither and fall away for they have no roots in the truth and their faith is temporary. Once hard times come, those who don't have deep roots will draw back, exposing their shallow faith. 
Their belief is easily swayed and pulled up by the roots. Hence the importance of us having good root system, right? What many fail to understand is the adversity they face can actually work for them in developing Christ-like character. Strong winds help trees develop strong roots. Sadly, rather than allowing their roots to go deep, these new believers are uprooted, falling away from their faith in Jesus. So the enemy of our soul will also use distraction to undermine the word. Jesus said in Luke 8, 14, the seed that falls into the weeds represents the hearts of those who hear the word of God, but their growth is quickly choked off by their own anxious cares, the riches of the world and the fleeting pleasures of this life. And this is why they never become mature and fruitful. So if the devil cannot succeed at deceiving or uprooting us, he will do whatever he can to distract us by tempting us to put other things before God. And these distractions keep us from feeding on God's word. And finally, Jesus described those who withstand the onslaught of the enemy, those who allow the word of God to deeply plant within their hearts and bear much fruit. Luke 8, 15, the seed that fell into good, fertile soil represents those lovers of truth who hear it deep within their hearts. They respond by clinging to the word, keeping it dear as they endure all things in faith. This is the seed that will one day bear much fruit in their lives. So receiving the word of God requires us to become lovers of truth. People who hold fast to the word despite the challenges, discouragement, and the lies that oppose us. The ones who receive God's word are those who accept its authority. Paul commended the church in Thessalonica, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you, in you who believe. The Bible must become the authoritative standard of truth upon which we build our lives. Always having the first and last word in all that we do. God's word is timeless. It transcends culture, tradition, feelings, and reason. The Bible is useful to teach us what is true and help us grow beyond what would hold us back. Ultimately, God's word opens our eyes to the higher way of living in Christ. Ah, oh, I still have three points. Preach it next week. So you have to come back next week to the other three points. <laughs> oh. Okay, everyone stand up. Stretch your legs. Stretch. And we're going to quickly go through the next three points. Sit down. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I still have time. James 1 verse 2. So once we've read the word, we need to obey the word. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. After correctly receiving God's word, we must obediently respond to it. When we obey the word of God, especially in times of conflict and suffering, that's when we mature. You see, physical growth progresses with the passage of time. We spoke about seed, time, and harvest. No baby is born fully developed. 
no matter how hard a child tries to grow, physical maturity cannot be hurried because it's a function of time. Intellectual growth is a function of learning. So if you are 30 years old and you haven't mastered how to read a grade one reader, you will not be able to comprehend a grade 10 reader, right? Even though you are much older than most 10th graders. Conversely, there are 12 year olds who have completed their high school education. So intellectual growth is a function of learning. Spiritual growth is neither a function of time or learning. It's a function of obedience. Knowledge of scripture alone is not a key to growth. Obedience is. So just because we're knowledgeable of the Bible, the devil knows the Bible too, right? It doesn't mean that we're skilled in its application. So referring back to my example of Joshua, one way his character has grown is by facing difficult situations. So in his early years of school, um, CJ arrived one day to pick him up from a soccer match and Joshua was being bullied, right, by some boys. And when he shared with us some of the things that those mean kids were saying and doing to him, I wanted to go and deal with it myself. But I knew that that would be wrong. <clears throat> I could go to prison for turning up to his school in a rage like the Incredible Hulk. For me to intervene would hinder his growth and likely end up with me being in trouble. So we continued to counsel him at home, preparing him to face the challenges he was encountering at school. He grew in character through both receiving and applying our counsel in the midst of difficulty. This is similar to what God does with us. He allows us the opportunity to apply what we know. The Bible says, Hebrews 5, 8, though he, Jesus, was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Knowing this, we can understand one reason why there are people in the church who've been Christians for 20 years, can vote, quote verses, remember numerous sermons, read many books, but they're still, still wearing spiritual diapers. Every time these people face difficult situations, rather than responding in obedience, they choose their own way. They never come to the knowledge of the truth because they don't apply it. But truth must be applied in our lives if we're going to grow and mature. It's not enough to just give thought and not act on it. As we obey, truth will shape our character, forging Christ-likeness within us. As you obey God's word, like those with the good soil, you'll grow spiritually and bear much fruit. Number four, I think, you are planted to, you have to be planted to flourish. So this pot plant, that pot plant, one of them, we replanted and two days later I came and the whole plant was like fiddling. No, isn't a good English word for that. Like hanging over the sides, dying. And it was because we had planted it too shallow, right? We had to redig and plant it. You have to be planted with depth and have a root system to flourish. Eight, John 8.31, if you abide in my word, continually obeying my teachings and living in accordance with them, then you are truly my disciples. The development of our Christ-like character cannot be rushed. It takes time. And God is more concerned with how strong you grow than how fast you grow. To abide means to stay, remain, and continue. 
Another definition is to plant. Those who are planted flourish. Using the analogy of a vine and its branches, Jesus likened himself to the vine and his followers to the branches. When the branches remain connected to the vine, they'll receive the life source that enables them to produce fruit. You can go home and read Colossians 2, 6 verse 7. That is our key scripture for the year. So you should have read it, but read it again. And the last point is we have to be pruned to prosper. In June, John 15, 1, I'm the true grapevine and the Father is my gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. If we're going to be like Jesus when he returns, that means we're going to have to change. This will involve the pruning of our character. Like any good and responsible father, God disciplines his children. The Lord will not allow his children to continue in what could ruin them. Ask Gary. When I was preparing, I remember twice last year, there were things Gary were gonna stifle his growth. And the first time God let me drive past him. And the second time God let me and CJ arrive five minutes earlier than we should have to confront things that would have stifled his growth, right? Because that's how much God loves us. Gary, we love you. That's why you're always good sermon material. Periodically, teacher, trees need pruning to remove dead branches or areas where there is an overgrowth that will choke the growth of good branches. Similarly, you and I need to be pruned at certain times in different areas to make room for greater growth. So are you carrying any dead branches in your life? You know, those areas that are not producing life zane, but rather are robbing you of it. Maybe it's a relationship that needs to be cut off. Maybe it's an offense from your past that you need to let go of, or a negative attitude that is poisoning your heart and preventing you from being at your best. God cuts these things from your life only in order to position us for greater fruitfulness. You see, God wants the best for us, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Jesus said, John 15 verse two, any branch in me that does not bear fruit, he cuts away. He, and he cleanses and repeatedly prunes every branch that continues to bear fruit to make it bear more and richer and more excellent fruit. Let's be real. Pruning is hard, but when it's over, we're much better off than when we were before. So Hebrews 12, five to six, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. To chasten means to correct or discipline. God prefers for us to heed his correction whether directly from him or through his word, otherwise discipline will follow. But no matter how he corrects or disciplines us, no method is pleasant at the time we receive it. But God is more concerned about our condition than our comfort. <laughs> the transformation of character is the purpose of his discipline and correction. Just as we prune dead branches to make room for greater growth, God removes those things in our lives that stunt our growth so that we can continue to mature and become more like Jesus. 
So let's embrace the Lord's correction and discipline as evidence of His love for us. So in closing today, I want to encourage you to embrace being pruned. Make sure that you're planted so that you can flourish. Make sure that you're in God's Word and that you're obeying God's Word. Don't just read it to read it, right? And make sure that your soil of your heart get rid of all the uncleanliness and all that remains of wickedness. Amen. And spiritual nourishment is, in, is of utmost importance for us to grow. So church, let's, our call to action this week, let's make sure we're in the word. Let's make sure we're obeying the word. And let's make sure that we, ma- we are planted in our relationship with Jesus so, and that we can start bearing fruit. And if we have to face a pruning process, welcome it because God loves you that much. Amen.